0: And that is really that refrain, that prayer that we just sang, Spirit of the Living God, uh, fall afresh on me. That's what we celebrate on this Pentecost Sunday. That's what we remember. That's what we join together with uh, Christians around the world. It is one of those um, wonderful high holy days, if you will, in the life of the church that we share with, uh, with Christians around the world. And, uh, and a, a day of of powerful significance for us. And, and if you're familiar with Pentecost, you're familiar with this story found in the, the New Testament, then you know before I even share with you or before it hits the screens or the bulletins in front of you the, the likely place we're going to be, and that's Acts chapter 2. Because this is the story of that first Pentecost. This is the story of that Spirit of God falling upon those first believers and, and followers of, of Jesus. And so we find that story, as I said, in Acts chapter 2. As the disciples um, have experienced the, the ascension of Jesus, they had spent 40 year, forty years, 40 days with Jesus after his resurrection. And then roughly about 10 days after his ascension, as they're gathered and they're waiting the events of Pentecost take place. And, and it's covered really in all of chapter 2. I'm just going to read the first um, portion of, of chapter 2. In, when the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place, being the disciples and followers of Jesus. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now there were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, the crowd came together in bewilderment, because each one heard their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked, Aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in our own native language? Parthians, Medes, and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs. We hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they ask one another, what does this mean? Some, uh, however, made fun of them and said they've had too much wine. Then Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice and addressed the crowd. Fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These people are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. No, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days... And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Friends, sisters, may God add his blessing to the reading of his word. Let let us pray. Gracious Lord, pour your Holy Spirit on us who come to to be open to you, to your presence and to the words that you would speak and the the voice of of Jesus that would touch each of our lives. I pray that in these moments, these words spoken as... As the word is read, they'd be from you. There'd be less of Chris and more of Jesus as we worship and grow together in faith. I pray in Christ's name. Amen. You may have heard a description used of Christians before uh, called people of the book. I don't know if that's something you're familiar with, but it's something that I've heard from time to time, that those who, who are Christians are called people of the book. And that speaks to our foundation on this scripture. It's, it's speaks to our foundation on, on the Bible and the Word of God is contained in, you know, from Genesis 1-1 in the beginning to the end of Revelation with the, the word amen. And, and the fact that our foundation is in Christ, but this is the testimony of God's work in Christ and, and, and before Christ. And so our identity is closely tied to, to the Bible, to the Scriptures. That's why it's so important to us. That's why I read from it every Sunday when we start. That's why uh, we have Bibles in, in every, just about every seat, so you can grab one. And, and here's what I'd venture to say. I would bet that everybody in here maybe not everybody, but probably, has a Bible. And if you don't have a Bible, come see me, because I will get you a Bible. Because I was sitting in, in the office the other day, I was looking for a resource off one of my bookshelves, and as I'm preparing this message, and I just looked, the entire top shelf of my bookshelf is all Bibles various translations and versions of the Bible, which, you know, makes sense as as a pastor and a minister that I I use a lot of and reference different versions and translations just to compare sometimes. Um, actually don't use a lot of those anymore because everything's on computer now, but it's the same, same reality. But the point is, you know, Bibles are easy to get your hands on. They're easy for us, and, and they have value because in your homes and in your private time, you can read, you can study God's Word, you can fact-check and anything I tell you. and You know, when I reference things, you can go home and you can go, hey, is he telling me the truth? And boom, you can pop it open and look. And um, I think we, we take that blessing for granted, because it's interesting that we're called people of the book, but really, if you consider that the church history is about 2,000 years old, only a fourth of that have Christians really had easy access to the book, to the Scriptures. I mean, it wasn't until the Gutenberg Press in about the 1450s when the first Bible was, was rolled off the press, if you will, and then the development of that technology that we've been able to have access to the scriptures. Prior to that, Christians didn't have access the way we do to the Bible. Because as you know, prior to that, Bibles had to be copied by hand. They were written um, by scribes who would copy, you know, version to version. If, uh, you know, I've talked a few times, I've referenced uh, Tony and I being away a few weeks weeks ago at Epcot. But those of you that, that have gone to Disney and have been to Epcot, if you remember, there's a scene in um, Planet Earth, you know, the big golf ball at Epcot Center. But there's one of those kind of vignettes as you're traveling through the history of of humanity where they reference the the Middle Ages and and this technology of writing and copying, and they have um, kind of monks in the dark room, and they're sitting over the desk, and they're hand-writing copies, really, of the Bible is what they'd most often be copying. One of them's falling asleep on the desk, you know, and, and I can certainly identify with that as well. But because of that reality, because of the, rea- you didn't have access to the Bible, or at least if you'd lived in that day, you didn't. And so uh, maybe if you were lucky, your cathedral or your church had the Bible, probably. And maybe if you were really rich, you could afford a copy of the Bible, which would be you know like this. But most most people didn't. And even if you did, if we were a microcosm of the time, ninety percent of us wouldn't have been able to read it anyway. So it, it was a different reality. And so, so the question becomes, well, how did the stories get learned and valued and treasures? How did they get, get passed on to our forefathers and our foremothers? Well, the reality is that the function of the church, like it is today, but a little different than it is today, the church became the center of life in every sense of the word. The church became the center of as many uh, cathedrals in Europe and in that time were built in the center of a town. And if you visited, you know right in what was at one point the center of town is where the the church would be, where the cathedral would be. And most of life happened right there. During the week, there would be markets there where you could go and, and, and buy things. If you were a traveler and you were passing through, you might be able to find lodging at the church. You might be able to find a meal at the church. Um, the festivals and the celebrations and the saints' days, everything happened in the cathedral, at the church. And so it really became the center, and that's where the stories were passed on. And the, the community of faith was shaped through teaching and through storytelling. And at many of these cathedrals, they had the Bible that people could come and read. But it was not the kind of Bible you normally think of. It was a different kind of Bible. It was a different kind of a communication. In fact, it's interesting that the Middle Ages, the Dark Ages, are are very often pictured that way, kind of drab and kind of gray and kind of gloomy and kind of um, hopeless sometimes. But yet out of that period thrived one of the most colorful and beautiful artistic um, expressions that we know, and that is stained glass. Stained glass... Had a valuable function in the life of the church because stained glass became the Bible that people could read, and when you walk in, even today, many cathedrals and um, and Gothic cathedrals, a, a duke. Uh, they have a cathedral. Jay and, and uh, Julie McNaughton were there a few weeks ago, and they've got one of these kind of big Gothic cathedrals. And when you walk in, they, they followed the pattern of Europe, and that is when you, you come in the back door, and if you immediately turn to your left, and they have stained glass windows that run all the way around the building, when you immediately turn to your left, you'll see the first stained glass pane, and it's a, it's a scene from Genesis, the creation of Adam and Eve. And if you know your Bible... And you walk around going left all the way back to right, you will see scenes starting from Genesis all the way through Revelation. And so the stained glass became the Bible, it became the people, the way that people could read the scriptures. And these are stained glass windows that I chose, and they depict scenes of Pentecost these are just two but they are both Pentecost scenes and if you can make out the detail you see the dove in the center like I have here each each scene has a dove which is depicts, depicts the holy spirit and they have uh, read for the tongues of fire and the waves that represent the wind. And here you see disciples that are, that are open, their hands are open, they're willing to receive, and here they're kneeled in prayer. But the idea is it reminded the people, every time they looked at that, at what happened on Pentecost, what happened on this day when the church was born, if you will, when the ministry was set into motion, and God's Spirit fell upon those who had gathered and began to prepare for God's movement. Now, the other interesting thing is the way that these Gothic and medieval churches would celebrate these days. And the and Pentecost was sometimes one of the most creatively celebrated of the church um, holidays, of the church festivals, if you will. And, and if especially in Italy, they talk about... In fact, there was a book written about 20 years ago by a Harvard scholar by the name of Diane Eck, and she talked about some of the practices in the medieval churches. And she talked about on Pentecost, well, and the ceilings in a lot of these cathedrals, you may remember that, that the, the ceilings would be painted with heavenly scenes. The most famous example of that is the, the Sistine Chapel. And, and they would depict these scenes of, of God's realm and God's kingdom and God's power. But they had another function. There was a, a little practical function. The scenes would also creatively hide trapdoors that were built into the... To the ceilings. And so on a day like Pentecost some volunteer would be selected to go onto the roof. Now again, think about these you've seen pictures if you haven't been of these Gothic cathedrals. These are massive structures. I cannot fathom going up there. But somebody would go up on the roof and during the liturgy and during the worship and at the appropriate time. On the day of Pentecost, they would open the trap door and they would pour into the trap door live doves that would then swoop down over the congregation as they made their way out the back doors that would be opened that reminded the congregation of the Holy Spirit. and the pra- Can you imagine what that would feel like to have doves? You'd probably have to duck a little. Um, <laughs> but to have these live doves that come down to, to visibly, to tangibly remind you, of the presence of God moving over you. That must have been a pretty awesome awesome experience. You know what it reminded me too that there's really nothing new in in the church. Not nothing new is we live in a day and age where we we try to create through technology and through projectors, and we do things to try to create experiences of worship in different ways to connect, and we think this is new. It's not new. The church has been doing this for thousands of years. We just do it differently, but it's the same concept. And so these doves would come through. And then what they would do is they would, at another time in the service, that they would use instruments or voices and they would create the sounds of like a rushing wind. And they would again open the trap doors and they would pour out through the doors onto the congregation red rose petals to signify the falling of the tongues of fire and the Holy Spirit that would literally fall upon people. Reminds us of the power and it's a tangible expression of a, of a spiritual reality which is the God's presence that falls upon all who claim the name of Jesus. But those trap doors in those cathedral ceilings that they would use in these creative ways, you know what they were called? Holy Spirit holes. They were called Holy Spirit holes. Uh, and we joked a little bit these are not Holy Spirit holes. Um, <laughs> These are new projector holes. Um, but it crossed my mind for a while. I was like, I wonder if I can get anybody up there to pour, but I thought that's probably not going to work. Um, but and some of you didn't even know they were there. Now you're all looking, hey, there's holes up there. Um, Holy Spirit holes were the ways in which, in a figurative way, in an experiential way, a congregation could open themselves up to experience symbolically the presence of of god his his holy spirit his voice and his power into their lives but in a, in a real way in a spiritual sense as i read that story and i thought about that reality i wondered for you and for me and for us how faithfully how well we create holy spirit holes in our lives room in our lives for god's spirit to speak Places in our lives, vacuums, if you will, in which God can speak into. That we are receptive and that we are open and we are prepared and we are expectant to hear and experience the voice and the presence of God. And I think sometimes our lives get so cluttered, our activities become so jammed, our schedules become so full that we tend to block out. Not necessarily intentionally, but we tend to leave no room for God to speak, no, no place for God to, to enter in to our lives. We need to create Holy Spirit holes. And that's what happened to those disciples that day. They created a, a place and an opportunity and a moment in which God could speak into. Now, let me say, I don't mean to say that God can't meet us and speak at, at unexpected and unplanned ways we don't limit God we don't box God in there are those Moses at the burning bush and Paul on the Damascus Road and there are those stories where God shows up completely unexpected but I do think that God also desires for us to create room for him to speak into our lives, to create moments. And so I go back to Pentecost. I go back to that first day in which God literally entered in and just flooded into the place where the disciples were, and His Holy Spirit rained down upon them. And I go back and I start to think, what was the the setup? See, what happens is, very often, and as a preacher I do this, I tend to focus on the, the results. I tend to focus on what happened. I get to Peter's sermon, which I read part of, when the disciples have flooded into the streets and everybody's hearing the disciples in their own language and they're amazed and, and Peter and the other disciples begin to proclaim the gospel of Jesus. And they begin to proclaim his resurrection. They quote from the scriptures and they invite people to faith. And the scriptures tell us at the end of Acts chapter 2, as I've said before, that 3,000 people came to faith on that day and that's actually not that's actually more than that because i only counted men so there was 3000 men that didn't count women and children so i mean we tend to as as a preacher just amazed at that kind of of result and that kind of impact but for a moment let's go back to the setup to the beginning because i think there's a lot for us to learn about implementing holy spirit holes in our own lives from just what happened in the few or the first few verses which are really, really easy to gloss over. Let's back up for a moment. The very first sentence that I read from the the Scriptures this morning. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. They were all together in one place. Well, the first thing to creating Holy Spirit holes in our lives is we have to create space for it. We have to create a place for it in our lives. The disciples were all together. That wasn't an accident. They were intentionally joined together. They continued to remain in fellowship. They continued to remain in contact. They continued to gather together, presumably for prayer and for worship and for for being there in a, a community of faith together. We need to create places in our lives where God can enter in. And that's exactly what they were doing now, it doesn't always have to be corporate. It doesn't always have to be group. There are individual and personal ways uh, in your day-to-day life that you can create space for God to speak into your life. In a lot of things, it's not just by entering into the, the, the proverbial prayer closet in private. That is one way you can do that. In your scripture reading, even in the, your normal day-to-day activities. The rule of St. Benedict, which was a rule that was implemented... Uh, during the, those kind of middle ages for, for, the, for monks talked about how to worship, doing everyday things like washing dishes. You know, how to worship and, and create space for God in all your activities. And I think we can do that. I think we can do it in everything that we do. You can do it when you're driving. You can do it. I, I've heard some people that, um, that are runners will say that running becomes a, a prayer time for them, a time in which they talk and commune with God. I used to run, and I talked to God a lot, but it wasn't a real wonderful conversation at that moment. Um, but I get that. I do understand in the way that, that you can do that. So you can create that space personally. But we also need to create that corporately, communally, together. And that's what worship is. That's what small groups are. That's the intentionality. I mean, you guys got out of bed this morning and came. You could have done a... a million other things. You could have stayed in bed. I know, and some of you wanted to. I know, I know. I can see some of you patting each other. Yes, I know the feeling. Trust me, my alarm goes off at 5 a.m. I I totally get that idea. Maybe I can just skip today feeling. But you didn't. But you're here because we create space. We create place, and there's a lot of wonderful things that happen here, But, but God calls us to community. So the first thing we do is we create space for God. But see, here's the other thing. We do it With an intentionality. Because we create space because we expect presence. P-R-E-S-E-N-C-E, presence. Did I spell that right? Did I? Okay, you don't know. All right. We expect the presence of God. See, I wonder how many times we come in with expectation. I mean, real expectation that God's going to do something by the time... We leave this place. That because we came in here, when we walk out the doors, we're going to be different. Because I suspect that sometimes we come because... The fellowship's good. We enjoy the people that come to church, so we want to go see our friends. So we come for the fellowship. Or we come because we enjoy the music, and the praise man works so hard, and they do a great job, and and we love that. Or we come because, man, maybe it'll be a good sermon today. And, um, you know, we hope hope for that kind of an an expectation. And those are all good expectations. But I wonder how many of us come every Sunday thinking, today God's going to show up. Jesus says, when two or three are gathered in my name, what? there I am also. How many of us come because we expect Jesus to show up? Because we expect that when we walk out of here, we're going to be different than when we came in. And that maybe today God's going to do something in our life that we never expected. And that God is going to change the course and the trajectory of who we are and, and What we're called to do. How many of us come in with a holy expectation? Well, see, the disciples gathered together because they had a holy expectation. And you go, well, how do you know that, Chris? Well, I know that because Jesus gave it to them on Acts chapter 1. In verse 4, this is what Jesus said before he left He said, Do not leave Jerusalem. Well, why does he say, Don't leave Jerusalem? Because none of them were from Jerusalem, it wasn't their home. They had every reason to suspect that when Jesus had ascended and they thought this was over, they'd go back to Galilee. They'd go back to the places they'd come from. But Jesus says, no, 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 don't leave. This is why. Wait for the gift the Father has promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Now here's what I know. They had no idea what that meant. They had no idea what that meant but they knew Jesus said God was going to do something. So they stayed in Jerusalem, and they gathered together, and they gathered together to create place, but they created place because they had a holy expectation that God was going to show up. And this had been 10 days since Jesus had left. So that means they'd probably been gathering for 10 days. It means it didn't happen in the first nine. You know, it would be great to think that every time we create place, God's going to show up in a powerful way. We want him to show up. And sometimes God shows up with, just be patient. Just wait and keep going. And for nine days, he'd probably been through this. But on the 10th day, in their place and in their expectation, God showed up in powerful ways. How many of us gather honestly, believing God's really going to show up? God's going to speak into your life. And then when you walk out of here, it's going to be different than when you walked in. That's what the disciples believed. That's what we're called to believe, to a place with holy expectations. And then the third piece is that the created place, they expected presence, and then they responded in obedience. When the Holy Spirit came, I mean, that must have been a powerful, wonderful moment to feel the presence of God. If you have ever been blessed in your life to be in a place and have moments when you could tangibly feel the presence of God, that is awesome. I, mean, I, can, I can count and not as often as I'd like to, but I can count some times in my life and moments and places where I mean I have tangibly felt as if Jesus was right there. And I, I long and I hunger for those moments. But see, the disciples remind us of something. They took that in. But they didn't keep it. They immediately responded in obedience to the way that the Holy Spirit started to prompt them. And these, and I've said before, the most powerful testimony to the resurrection is this day. Because these scared, hold up, fearful, afraid we're going to die to disciples immediately said, we don't care anymore. We're not scared. And into the streets they went and they began to to tell others about it. They began to share the blessing. That's what they did. They began to say, hey, God's done this for us. God has rained down on us. We want you to experience that too. We want you to be blessed as we've been blessed. Let me tell you how you'd be blessed. It's about Jesus. And they began to live Jesus. Well, part of creating place and creating expectation is also responding in obedience. Is being willing To not only recognize that God speaks in your life, but God's going to call you to do something. I can promise you this. Without a shadow of it, I will make this promise. If God speaks into your life, He's going to call you to do something. It is not just going to be to pat you on the back. That may be part of it, because God's a loving Father, like a loving mother that speaks and encourages. That's part of it. But I promise you, God's not going to call you to stay on your backside and keep it to yourself. When God speaks and God moves, and God rains down on us like rose petals from heaven or tongues of fire, God calls us to obedience. You know, I told, if you were here last week, you know, I told that kind of embarrassing story about how I kind of misspoke and, and you know, praise God that I hadn't made Tony pregnant the week before when I meant to say sick, and if you didn't, if you weren't here last week, go back and listen to the story, it'll make sense. But I told you that after, you know, everybody got done laughing at me, uh, Calvin Frazier stood up and basically put more coals onto the fire and, and got everybody laughing again. He was one of those kind of cut-ups in the congregation. And, and I always remember Calvin. But, but I remember Calvin for more than just that reason. Because Calvin was also part of a, a men's Bible study group at the church. They would met, I think it was every Thursday morning, at about 6 o'clock in the morning before they'd go to work. And they had prayer and Bible study. They created a place for God. And they went with an expectation God was going to show up. And one day, God showed up in a way they didn't expect. And, and somehow, in this group of men, they got convicted that they needed to get engaged in the homeless ministry in the community. Not in the church. It wasn't an in church. It was a community ministry. I think it was run by one of the Catholic organizations. And so, they got convicted to get involved. So, they decided... To start going, they got in communication with, with the organization. And, and on one Sunday a month, they would these men would make dinner for 40 or 50 guys. This was a men's shelter. And they would go to the shelter, and they'd feed them. But then not only that, then they would gather together in this little chapel, any who wanted to come, and they would worship together. And they would start to share the love of Jesus. And that in of itself is remarkable, but it didn't stop there. Because then this men's group decided, you know what? More of this church needs to get involved. And they started talking to other groups. So the men's group was doing it once a month. Well, then on the Sunday they weren't doing one of the other ministry groups stepped in, and they started serving food and leading worship. And then on the third Sunday of the month, another group stepped in. On the fourth Sunday of the month, another group stepped in. Then they went, wait, we got more groups. There's another shelter. So then groups started moving into the other shelter. So it got to the point... By the time this movement was over, or at least had kind of settled, that every Sunday night at two homeless shelters in the Clearwater area, groups from that church were making dinner and were taking it and were feeding these men and families and leading them in worship. How do I know? Because I was leading young adult ministry, and guess what? Once a month on Sunday nights, we were making dinner and we were serving and we were leading in worship. Because about six guys sitting around a table on a Thursday morning felt God move and decided we needed to respond in obedience. And I could go on and on with those kind of stories. I could tell you about Elsie Logan, the last church I served, who started a senior ministry, feeding and providing food for for senior citizens who were undernourished. And that turned into a whole senior center in this fellowship hall at the church. And I'll tell you what, Elsie Logan was a pain in my butt sometimes because that was her passion. God lit her up, and she wasn't, she wasn't letting the preacher or anybody else get in her way, but because God got a hold of her. I could tell you about Joe, who was part of the praise band at a church where Tony and I were at, and Joe, was, Joe had the American dream. You know what I called him? He retired in his 40s, financially set for the rest of his life. I mean, well set for the rest of his life, and In his 50s, this man who could have just lived his days comfortably and without any tension, really, felt God's call in his life and responded in obedience, felt the Spirit of God rain down on him and went to seminary and became an ordained United Methodist minister and served until his second retirement as a pastor of a church. And that's not a stress-free life, let me tell you. Or, Or... Doug, my other friend, who left a six, over six-figure salary because he felt God call him to be obedient and go into ministry. And I can tell you, we don't make six figures. But he felt called into that. Over and over, God reigns upon us. When we create spaces, we create these Holy Spirit holes in our lives, that God will show up and God will speak in. And God will prompt you to obedience. I pray that we create those, those spaces for God. That you and I do it. That we do it. That this, became, this becomes even more of that place. That it is part of what you expect when you come in. But in other ways too. But that we follow up with faithfulness. We would follow up with obedience. Willingness to go where God would lead. And to, to, to take that blessing in. But then to seek to pour it out to be the conduit in which God speaks. That's what it means to create Holy Spirit holes, the vacuums of our lives that God can speak into. I pray that you create them. You invite them. You seek them out so that together we can become those instruments that God uses to divine and holy purposes. The power of Pentecost is not just that it happened 2,000 years ago. The power of Pentecost is it happens today still today, when God's Holy Spirit pours into the lives of those who are open to receive it. Let us, brothers and sisters, be people who are open to receive it. Let's pray. Gracious and loving God, speak into our lives and propel us forward in ministry. You know, speak in and, and rain upon us tongues of fire that would light us up to the glory of Jesus and that we would go forth in whatever way you would call, whatever field you would lead, whatever ministry you would prompt us to, to be a blessing to others, always to the glory of Christ our Lord. For it is in His name that we pray. Amen.